the whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. It was basically a cube with inside of sphere where the points of the cube uh, were touching outside of the sphere. So this isn't anything that just is limited to the United States. It's a worldwide phenomenon. Hi folks and welcome back to the second part of the very first That UFO Podcast Roundtable. Thanks for listening to the first part of the show. Well, I'm assuming you have if you're here for the second part. This second part with Kevin, Gary and Patrick focuses on you, the listeners' questions and you sent them in in their dozens. Uh, the very best ones made it onto the show. Thanks to everyone who did submit a question. Due to time constraints, I couldn't get everyone's in. But please keep submitting them on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube and email at ufouapam at gmail.com. Next month in September, we will have the second roundtable show, which I'm already planning. Keep an eye on the online feeds for more details on that to come. Just before we get into the show again, folks, thank you very much for listening to this episode. Really looking forward to hearing more of your feedback. Let me know how I can shape the future shows. And there'll be a quick message from one of the friends of the show before we get into the episode. Thanks for listening, folks. Have you ever looked up to the skies and seen something you can't explain? Or walked deep in the forest and sensed something watching you? Do you believe in an afterlife or a hidden veil that can communicate with the living? Then you need Shadows of Your Mind magazine. Download all issues completely free at shadowsmagazine.co.uk Shadows of Your Mind, where your search for the answers begins. Coming back from that message, folks, we had a ton of listener questions sent over. Thank you very much. And I've narrowed it down to about four or five pages worth of questions. Some of the other stuff has already been answered within the body of the interview. So thank you very much. Um, uh, And folks, uh, some of the names are Twitter names and whatnot. I'm just going to go through and ask the questions as well, because some of you sent really similar questions in too. So if you think it's your question, it probably is. Let's go with that. First question, can the guys discuss the Navy's CEC radar and how it's impossible to misidentify a plane? I think, PJ, you want to take that one, don't you? First of all, CEC is not a radar. It's, it stands for Cooperative, Cooperative Engagement Capability, and the layman unclassified version, it is a real-time data link between a bunch of different ships and airplanes. You know... It doesn't have its own information. It pulls information from all the sensors on other ships and here and there. Um, so it, it's not something you can spoof. It's the, the glorious thing about it, and it's available on the Internet to look up, is that it takes all the stuff it's connected to and makes one giant picture. So you're unlikely to fool it. But the big thing is the CC is not a radar. Guy, yeah, it, it also has systems on it that are already written into it that if data doesn't correlate with what it thinks it should be, um, it will not use it. So, like, say one of the links was, uh, you know, like one of the links coming from one of the ships was just 
corrupted. Like, you know, say there was something wrong with the CEC and it was sending a bunch of bad information. It would just drop that link. It, it doesn't need that link to make the picture. It just needs all of the other links that it has. You know, basically any one link it's not dependent on. Mm -hmm. So it's, co it's, it's collaborating the information amongst everything connected mm -hmm. to it. And that's how it's making its picture. Um, so with CEC, it can't be spoofed because it's not it's not something to spoof. It's just a, it's a data link system. It's not a uh, it's not a radar. <laughs> cool. No, thanks for that. So next question, biggest philosophical question has to be intent. Why, with such superior capabilities, have these craft allowed themselves to be seen? Well, I think uh, starting with, with our invention of radar, they'd never intended us to see them. Um, I think it's just uh, as our capabilities become more and more advanced, we're able to, we're just able to see them. It's kind of like, uh, you know, before we invented AM and FM radio, we couldn't transmit over those frequencies. We didn't even know they existed, you know. So once we are able to, then it just brings us into another realm of existence, so. Uh, so to expand on that then, why when Commander Fravor, I'll, I'll use the word engaged, that might be wrong, at one of these craft, and as he commented, he came down towards it and it came up towards him. Why didn't this thing just shoot off at that point? Well, um, probably for the same reason if, you know, I got into a fight with a kid. You know, if I got into an actual fist fight with a kid, I wouldn't hurt him. You know, I wouldn't even, you know, I would just do everything I could to avoid them because of how much damage I could do to that child. You know, I mean, well, why if they are, you know, actually malevolent or they're not, if they are non-hostile, that would explain why they don't do anything to us. If it's reverse engineered technology or if it's our technology and it's our people, that would also explain why they didn't do anything. So, you know, it bodes, bodes okay either way, but yeah, it, it's, it's a question that definitely is staying in the philosophical realm because I don't think there's a, a good solid answer for it until we understand and identify the actual objects themselves. Well, what do you think about that, PJ? No, I would have answered and said what you've said pretty much. So don't ask well, me. Then, well, then say it again. We'd like no. to hear you. No. See, this is why he's our information guy and not a VP of anything. <laughs> I do have one. Uh, oh, Kevin's dropped off. That's, that's, at least when he comes back on, I'll invite him in. Um, so uh, here's one for PJ. Uh, one of the listeners has mentioned that uh, the UAP task force will apparently have more power than ATIP did. Um, but do you think that these programs could just get closed out of things like Lou was back in the ATIP days, potentially? Or do you think they're going to be allowed to actually do some digging and, and make any real progress? I don't doubt that there's going to be stuff they don't have access to. It's, it's the way the government works. It's the way the military works. I know a secret. You don't. You don't need to know the secret that I know, so I'm not going to tell you. You know, it's, I may have a top secret clearance, but that doesn't mean I can know every top secret item in the government. You know, just because the UAP task force is given a top secret clearance for access to top secret information doesn't mean they're going to get to know everything. You know, say a cruiser, I'm just going to use a Princeton, sees this again. 
that UAP task force isn't going to know that the, the Princeton saw the objects again unless somebody tells them, you know, unless there's a reporting process. And the government and military is too big of a bureaucracy to get all that stuff to, uh, to work the way they really want it to. Would you agree with that, Gaddy? Yeah, the only thing I'd really add to that is the f simple fact that, I mean, just go to a, a simple FOIA request. Uh, unless you specifically ask exactly in the right exact words and terminology for what you want from them, they'll give you bullshit back. So unless they know the exact questions to ask, they may never get the right information. No, that's, that's good. Uh, Kevin, welcome back. Thank you. Can you hear me? Yes, absolutely. Uh, we've just done some listener questions. Do you mind taking the next one? I don't mind at all. Bring awesome. it. Uh, one of the listeners wanted to know, what level of disclosure or admission would it take for, for these events to make it into school textbooks? Wow, that's a freaking awesome question. Um, I think, oddly, I think uh, UAPX Expedition. When we go out there and we record these things and some really smart people stand up and say, this is what I saw and here's my proof, I don't think there will be any option at that point. It'll have to be acknowledged. That's the Again, whole point of our mission, I think. You're filing that then under the scientific you know, side of things, aren't you? That this is, this is science, this is science fact, here's the data, here's the experiments we've done, and here's the results off the back of it. So it's, it's irrefutable proof then, yeah? Yep, exactly. And, uh, and over to you to tell us what we saw. You know, that's the whole idea. We're going to gather all this data and then give it to some other really smart people to tell us what we just saw. Yeah, it will make the school books. It will make the history books. And I think that deep down on the side, I think that it will, it is going to change it, end up changing the world. I really do. I think for some of us, it has changed the world. And even for guys like you, it's affected your life. So, so yeah, I think we're, we're starting to see that kind of the, the cracks appearing in, in a really good way. Um, Gary, the next question was for you. Um, how certain are you that the object you saw through the big eyes were the ones being tracked on radar? And did you see any movement? Um, I'm 100% certain that the objects that I saw were uh, as far as out we were and that the uh, range and bearing that they were at, they, they, it could have couldn't have been anything else. Um, timing was perfect. I mean, we're only talking a difference of minutes from the time I go from combat to up to the big eyes. So, I mean, it's not a whole lot of time. So, um, not unless every single time the same exact object just happened to be there at the same elevation and bearing every single time I went to go look at it. You know, and granted, even half the time, we, we were too far away from them. So to see them half the time. So uh, when I did get to see them and, uh, you know, any time they did move, it depends on the angle that we were at versus where they were at and which way, what vector that they went at. So if they were going, you know, uh, you know, parallel with us, I could see them move. But if they were going, you know, toward us, then, you know, other than see them get a little bit brighter or, or just disappear, I, that was basically all I could see through the big eyes. Um, it wasn't until I saw the video itself that I really got the, the good eyeball full of exactly what this thing I've been, I've been looking at through the big eyes really looked like. So, you know, it's, uh, I, to me, I'm 100% certain the things I saw through the big eyes were exactly what we were tracking. 
it was it was funny though that the way different people would think about these incidents because Jeremy McGowan mentioned when I interviewed him that until he spoke to Luella Zondo about the incident that had happened years before in the middle of the desert in Jordan, he thought it was one object in the sky that was repeating the same cycle. And apparently it wasn't until Luis Elizondo asked him, is there any chance that these were multiple objects just following the same path, that he actually had that idea that, oh, maybe these were multiple contacts I was seeing. And I mean, it could have been one object repeating, but then again, it could have been more so. But you're quite certain that it was, it was more than likely multiple, yeah? Yeah, because we, we, we were tracking them at the same time. Um, generally, if it was one one object, and it was just disappearing and then reappearing because of how fast it was going. And basically, we were just getting a, a hit every you know fifth time on them, and that's why it seemed like it was just disappearing. It, it would we, we wouldn't be tracking solid objects across the board, you know, and being able to see the path of these objects because you remember when we first started tracking them, they weren't going fast at all. Matter of fact they were doing the opposite of that. They were only doing a hundred knots, which is ridiculously slow for a flying object. So, I mean, that in itself was just odd. So, I mean, they were not going amazingly fast. We were able to track them. They were, you know, luckily for us, very solid objects. Uh, even after we decided that they couldn't be real and then tried to see if there was anything wrong with our systems, there was nothing wrong with our systems. So when we brought them all back up, Sure enough, they were all still there. So it was uh, it, it was definitely a hundred percent a you know real solid multiple objects. Uh, you know, there's no way that I think you know I I am not I have no understanding of anything that would be capable of faking the tracks that we saw at the time in two thousand four. Uh, I know people have brought up other systems, but just looking how the systems work, there's there's no way they could have spoofed our system. Um, even even a gigantic flock of really cold seagulls or birds would not. Even have... if they were hypersonic seagulls shitting fucking rockets, they wouldn't they wouldn't have uh, <laughs> they wouldn't have fucking <laughs> fake, got, gotten through our system. I'm just starting to believe the hypersonic seagull theory, so let's I'll tell you what, well. the first time I see a fucking hypersonic <laughs> seagull, I'd be happy. One of the one of the skill sets for operation specialists is exactly what you're asking about, being able to correlate what we see on radar with what the the lookouts, in this case Gary and I saw visually with our eyeballs. So you know, one of my skill sets has been doing it for eighteen years at the time and I'm absolutely hundred and ten percent positive that what I saw on radar was exactly the object I saw through the big eyes. And when I saw it, it was actually pretty boring, and I was disappointed and went back down to combat. I was disappointed, but I was the, excited I found it. <laughs> yeah, some of the watchstanders actually saw these things maneuver with their eyes, some of the bridge watchstanders and stuff. Sean Cahill being one of them. Our buddy Sean Cahill. Yeah, I spoke to Sean Cahill about that back in the second so episode. Yeah, not that I don't 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 love having Patrick here, but I was actually really looking forward to, to actually doing an interview with him. He's uh, I've had a couple of conversations with him privately, and other than that, he's a real interesting cat. I yeah, definitely somebody I want to get to know even more than I know, because uh, even 
you know, him as a, you know, on board being a higher rank and me as being a lower rank other than running into him from time to time, you don't have a whole lot of personal interaction with people, with, with, with them, like me and Kevin, you know, other than, you know, I knew him, I knew of him, he was a, you know, regular watch standard, so I've had conversations with him prior, but he was a chief, I was a junior enlisted, uh, it was not, we were not the same. <laughs> <laughs> so it's 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 a whole different animal you know we're now when we speak to each other it's with mutual respect but back then it's you know you're you're my junior you do what i need you to do and you don't need to know anything else <laughs> that's probably how i feel talking to you guys just now so yeah uh but let's uh, next question i will throw out to the floor um was chad underwood directed to the tic tac by the princeton radar or did he find it on commander fravor's direction alone Fravor was low on fuel, so he had to uh, return to base, uh, RTB back on the carrier, and uh, Chad Under was getting ready to take off um, for the next flight. And uh, Fravor's like, hey, Chad, don't don't forget to take an Atflir plane so you can film this thing. Go find them. And reportedly, Underwood replied by saying, I'm going to go find those things. Dumped in his airplane, took off, and went out there and found them. He um, came up on uh, Charlie Control, or air intercept control and we took control of his flight and entered and made sure he went to the right spot in the sky where he found him so basically what, the, what, he's, was what, what you're saying is that uh fravor's involvement was to the point of making sure that chad had the at clear pod on his aircraft before he launched uh, and then we were the ones that guided him in, in, into that and he then from there he takes it from there to go look for the objects we gave him relative bearing and direction, and then he goes that goes and gets the eyes on. Awesome. Yeah, it's a forward-looking infrared radar. That at forward-looking infrared radar. Hopefully, that breaks it down a little bit better for you. Yeah. No. No. Thank you. Uh, and the next question is along the similar path, but it was actually for Patrick uh, for PJ. Um, it was asked on Twitter, and I think he said he would talk about it as much as he could when he came on the show. Um, so a lot of debunkers have questioned the capabilities of the FLIR and radar. Can you talk where possible on what these systems are actually capable of? Well, I'm not going to talk about FLIR because I'm not a FLIR guy. But as far as the radar on the Hawkeye, which we tracked, and I'll let Gary speak on spy. The the way the radars work, and there's multiple radars in use. There's a spy, there's a Hawkeye radar, the fighter radars, the Nimitz radars. All of these radars have different capabilities, different, you know, different ranges, different power, different, you know, processors. They all work differently and they were all giving us the same information. You know, the the way the radar on the Hawkeye particularly worked is it's got inbuilt processing. It was an older radar, but a very modern processor. It's designed to look for that stuff. You know, we used to play games with the Prowlers, which are jamming aircraft, which are meant to jam aircraft, jam radar specifically, and they rarely were able to jam the Hawkeye's radar because the way the radar is designed to work. Um, I can't elaborate on all of them because, you know, a lot of that portion is classified, but it's, it's designed to, to not get spoofed, you know, and the Hawkeye radar can be spoofed if you're really good and you know what you're doing, but Gary's radar, you're not spoofing. His radar has way too many antennas, way too many. I'll let Gary speak on that, but, 
You're not fooling that radar. You're not fooling that this many different radars in use. You know, if it was just one radar, I could understand the the whole spoofing line of thought. But when you have this many radars in use, I don't believe it. Gary, you want to speak on spy? Yeah. Um, well, spy. I mean, it's not really one radar uh you gotta remember each one of those hexagonal panels you see has x amount of feed horns and each one each one of those feed horns can be moved and moved in any particular direction that we want and we can actually track multiple objects which is one panel or all of the panels all the panels combined together make a 360 degree view um we can do things like burn through, which is where we crank up the power and we just basically focus everything on one spot and basically it overpowers another, another radar and for effective purposes jams it. Uh, but mostly it just key uh, keeps them from being able to use their radar on us. And then we can also do things like uh, use it as a, a FCS controller uh, basically, it uh, we have a different type of radar dish on board called a. Uh, um, it's a fire control. Uh, it's where it's when you hear when you hear like uh, on movies where they say uh, you know light up the target or paint the target. What they're actually talking about is using RF energy and bouncing it off of a specific target so that we can shoot a missile at it. Now, the missile itself interacts with the target because of how much RF is bouncing off of it. It's the most radiant RF object in the area, so it hits that target. Well, we can do that with SPY. We can do that with multiple objects with SPY. SPY is the most, was even then the most powerful radar on the planet. Um, until we, until somebody develops quantum radars act for, for actual practical use and not just the, uh, the prototype that you've seen on the internet. And when you actually dig into it, their prototype is very, very weak. And uh, until quantum radars are in effect, there will be nothing that could spoof a spy, one, a spy radar. Awesome. Thanks for that, Gary. And thank you, PJ. Um, Kevin, next question was for yourself, and there's a follow-up for Gary, too, on the back of it. Um, and I can ask PG the same, uh, if it's relevant. Uh, what was the most amazing thing about the footage you've seen regarding the Tic Tac? The most amazing thing for me is the fact that it, it still survived. You know, that I was actually down at the golf course. Um, I'd forgotten all about this, even though, because I, I, I didn't relate at all um, what happened to me after I retired and stuff, and I didn't relate it back to this event. Um, as it turns out, that it, it was the cause of what some of the stuff I was going through, and I just didn't. I, I mean, how the hell are you going to figure something like that out? I mean, you know what I mean. And I had forgotten all about it. I published my book, went on in life, and forgot about this. I was down at the golf course. I had just reopened the kitchen, and I was watching a golf tournament, and all of a sudden CNN's on. I, who the hell turned on? C and then I saw what was playing. It was that freaking video that I had in my email. The very within hours of this event actually happening. And it was the exact same fuzzy video. And I was so freaking shocked. I dropped the plate of fish and chips and uh, yelled out to my brother-in-law in the pro shop. Hey Dave, I got to go home. I'll explain later. I took off, went home, got on the internet and uh, Robert Powell had already posted something. He's from the scientific coalition ufology. 
I said, hey, Robert, this is Kevin Day. Um, we've never met, but you got to call me. I'm the guy that was sitting on the radar when this happened and controlled the intercept. And that's when it all started happening for me. So for me, the, the most amazing thing about this is the fact that we're even talking about this right now. I, I never expected this to happen ever in a million years. I really didn't. Gary, you feel the same way? I mean, I'd, I'd moved on. Well, I uh, I hadn't moved on. I never moved on. Um, I've always had my private studies about what we saw, um, you know, for as much as that's ever going to you know get me. But I've always tried to figure out what they are, how they worked, what kind of propulsion that they used, what kind of you know how how it could be possible for those objects to have done what they could do. Um, these are the questions that have basically made my head hurt for almost 20 years now so yeah <laughs> and gary your, your follow-up on that one was um is it possible that what gary saw in the longer tic tac video was a different event to the chad underwood film uh from what i understand no um but then again i'm also hearing that they've had that there is a possibility that they have multiple films from multiple planes that were in the air. Um, I think that he may have, been, I think the rest of the films are all gun, gun footage films from the gun cameras and not from the at FLIR pods. But uh, what I saw was basically, from what I understand, he was the only one with an at FLIR pod, so it would have had to have been his same footage. But there is a possibility. Uh, I didn't see like a label. It didn't say Underwood on on the screen or anything like that. Nor was I really paying attention to that part of the screen. I was pretty much eyes locked on the object that was, you know, the focus of this video. So uh, any any of the data that was running along the edges of the screen, which was a lot of data, I wouldn't have. Uh, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have remembered exactly what it said. So the only thing I remember is just. Uh, how numb my brain went seeing this object. Next question. I, again, I'll put out to whoever it's more relevant to answer, but you can all come in, of course. Did the craft seen underwater also head to Catalina Islands? And did any of you see the Tic Tacs enter the water when they reached the islands as well? I, I didn't. In fact, um, when this happened, it, it wasn't my uh, situational awareness whatsoever. Anything went into the water. I saw this thing drop from 28,000 feet on radar down to 50 feet and just hover there. Now, others have testimony saying these objects went into the water. And I, you know what? That's their testimony. And uh, I, um, at some point, maybe some evidence will come out. The same as it's coming out now with the different radar systems and uh, other witnesses coming forward. Maybe that same thing will happen with the subsurface contact, too. Gary, yeah. um, well, I know. The meeting with this question, so go for it. All right, so so I know that the pilots reported seeing a very large object underwater, and that the Tic Tacs were interacting with that object. Um, so we do have one confirmed report of at least one object being underwater. Uh, direction bearing, I have no idea which way it would went, which way it went. I know that it wasn't there at a certain point, um, and then. The uh, like in the in the unidentified episode where they had my interview, they you know they got me on film saying you know they had a track that was over 500 knots under the water, but what they cut off that uh, and and so nicely edited was the fact that I literally said prior to that and after the comment that uh, 
you know, it was uh, it was told to me by another another sailor, which I have yet to be able to get a hold of and verify this for a hundred percent. I'd feel I've had one of the other sonar technicians that I do know and trust uh, kind of tell me something contradictory that um, if there were tracks, it wasn't from the Princeton. I know that for a fact. The Princeton didn't track it underwater in any way, shape, or form. That if there were underwater tracks, it would have had to come from either the sub, the carrier, or some other uh, ship that was in the area. Um, we did not have our sonar buoys out. We didn't have our tail in the water, which, which means that it's a, a long sonar buoy tail that, that we drag so that we can triangulate and track objects through the water. And that's the only way we would have been able to uh, have, have known what the speed of something was with sonar. So because we didn't have that tail in the water, uh, we could the Princeton would never have been able to tell you whether it was 500 knots into the water. So if that information was accurate that I received from a uh, right now, I'm not going to I'm not going to name the source, but it was uh, it would have had to have come from one of the other ships in the battle group. But it's it's still unconfirmed. So I mean, that's take it for what you will. Um, I personally believe it. But I don't. I I have zero proof. I I'll be dead honest with that. Until I can get the particular person that told me about it to come out about it, it is uh, I have zero proof. So <laughs> take it with a grain of salt until we have better proof. No, I appreciate that. Uh, listen, so the next question is one of the longer ones. It was sent over by Jazz Shaw, um, who many will know from from UFO Twitter. Um, I'll I'll read through it, and uh, you might want to take some notes. Uh, so some of us have recently been reviewing the original Nimitz encounter interviews with a specific focus on gaining some perspective on two in, on the two individuals who showed up to collect the data bricks after the encounter. PG, I know this is something you've talked on. Um, I asked this question as a former radar tech who served on two carriers out of San Diego back in the day. I um, was always in CIC, so I don't shy away from the geek talk. And for those uh, I've been speaking to the guys about on the show and the listeners, this is some of the language that I was like, what? So I'm hoping the guys will understand this, and I'm sure they will. In some of those interviews, Gary Voorhees described them as two guys in suits. Uh, I'm assuming he meant jumpsuits or whatever uniform or clothes they had on underneath. The interviewer seemed to later interpret this as meaning they might be civilians, but that wasn't clear from the original answer. Jason Turner has said he doesn't remember seeing the helicopters land and didn't see them. And I'm going to butcher the surname here potentially, but is it Ryan Vigilt? Uh, originally described them as a couple of Air Force guys in plain flight suits later saying they are plain green flight suits with no names or insignia. Doesn't say how he knew they were Air Force, but later says absolutely Air Force, based on a glimpse of the uniforms he could see under the jumpsuits. With no, inf- with no offence t- intended, I've worn those jumpsuits for uh, helo trips between ships and from ship to shore. They don't show a lot of your uniform. That's an awfully tiny detail to remember 15 years later, when you say that you originally didn't find the encounter all that interesting until other people came forward. Uh, wondering what level of certainty we have that they were definitely Air Force and not Navy or possibly even civilian government that came on board. It doesn't take that long to fly out from Coronado out to that operating area. And I would like to ask what the guys think potentially about this situation. And by the way, I served on the Connie and Ranger out of North Point and was a TAD to the Kitty Hawk a couple of times. Say hi to my fellow squids for me. 
that was a bit of a longer question, but PJ, you might want to come in on that one, I think. Yeah, I know Gary's got his own part because um, our experiences are the same but different. You know, I understand what the gentleman is saying. You know, when they get off the helicopter, they have rubber duckies on, they have a helmet on, they have goggles on. It covers up all that stuff. Rubber ducky being a uh, life jacket, a life preserver. Um, by the time they made it to me, they didn't have any of that stuff off or on. They just had their flight suits. A Navy flight suit is green. An Air Force flight suit is green. But the insignia, the patches, the color of the ranks, all of that is different. And we get taught that in boot camp. You know, that's how ingrained it is in you to recognize the other services insignia. They definitely had, at least on my, my end, on the Nimitz, Air Force flight suits. They were lower ranking. I don't remember the rank, but they were Air Force flight suits. They had Air Force patches, Air Force insignia, all of that. And being a Navy ship, you don't exactly have Air Force officers on there all the time. They stand out. You know, that's something that you remember that they were there. And where my shop was on the Nimitz, it's a hike to get there. You got to go up some and down some and around some corners. It's not a straight shot just to get to us. So if they're making it all the way over to where I am, it's something I remembered. Gary? Well, our, our guys that came over to our ship, uh, you know, it, would, it could be anything from, uh, you know, I keep getting interviews where they talk about the men in black that came to my ship. And I say, I always correct them and say, oh, you mean the men in khaki? Because <laughs> they, uh, you know, we're talking polo shirts, khakis. Uh, we'll talk, we'll say semi, semi business formal, uh, or not formal, just business casual type of attire. Uh, I, and like PJ, I actually had to sign the chain of custody, which is actually the only thing I signed about this entire event. And that's actually why I got a little confused when I first, uh, I had to make sure that that wasn't a, uh, a, uh, non-disclosure agreement I signed because I, I, up to that point, I literally never signed a chain of custody in my entire life because we'd never given anything out other than tapes to tech reps uh, and things of that nature, which didn't require a chain of custody. Uh, but uh, we did sign, I did sign a chain of custody for our, our data recording tapes. So there is at least a paper trail somewhere, just not one that we can follow. Awesome, thank you. Guys, just a couple more questions and then we can wrap up. I appreciate the time. Um, Kevin, this next one is for you. Did an officer give you instruction to investigate the radar anomalies? No, as a matter of fact, um, after this happened, I went up to Combat Information Center, CSE, and I was going to, I didn't know how the captain was going to react, but I was going to draft an after-action message because I I was a primary operational message writer for the ship. And then, you know, I'd write the message and then I would route it through the chain of command and the captain would end up releasing it. Because of the way he was acting, I pulled him off to the side. Hey, Captain Smith, um, what's going on here? What what are these objects? And he looked at me with a very perplexed look and said, I don't know, maybe ice." A spontaneous forming ice from space, he said. And I have to admit, laughing out loud, and I'm glad he didn't get mad at me for it, but I actually laughed at him. Okay. So the next day I went, I went up to combat. I was going to um, draft a message after action report, and I didn't I didn't know if he was going to release it or not, but I was going to try. 
and I went over to the um, to get my data and stuff. I went over to the RD390, which recorded all of our external communications on the radios. And lo and behold, all of my voice comms were gone. You're you know, every time we key the mic, every time we key the mic on the external, it gets recorded. The the date time it gives a date time stamp, and then the follow on voice comms. Well, strangely enough, all this all the all the date time stamps were on the disc still, but all the comms were gone. Yep. And I looked at the tech. I looked at the technician, and I could tell that he knew what had happened. And I'm not going to mention his name because he hasn't come out yet. But he, I, I just gathered instinctively that he knew, but he couldn't tell me. And I respected that, and I gave up the idea of writing a message at that point. Something very strange had happened, and it was way beyond my pay grade to figure it out. So I just left it alone. Because what Kevin didn't know is while he was doing all that with the captain and trying to figure out how to report this, uh, we I was turning over data tapes and being instructed to erase everything. <laughs> yeah, I figured all that out later. Yeah, and you know, and ironically, I didn't know that he was the one that accessed the data afterwards until our until we told our story separately later on. And I was saying it's like we were literally in the same room the first time I heard it. We were on stage over in Laughlin. And I'm like, oh my god, I am the asshole that erased that on him. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, man. Thanks. Yeah. So. Yeah, it was, a, it, was a, it was truly a head scratcher, and um, you know, I had 18. I had um, there was only one guy in the ship that had more sea time than me was the captain. I had 18 years of sea time on that on Ticonderoga class ships that that day when that happened, and I had never experienced anything like this. You know, usually when we do exercises and operations, everything's been scripted months in advance and practiced and rehearsed and repracticed and debriefed and briefed and debriefed. This thing was so far outside of the realm of anything I'd ever seen. I just, I didn't know what to do. So I didn't do anything. And Kevin, the next question again is for you. Uh, was it yourself who guided Chad Underwood during the filming of the FLIR video or was it a colleague? Um, he would have guided him yeah. to the to the area, like the general area where it was, and then Chad would have done his own interrogation from that point on. Yeah, and you have to remember we got data links too, so he can look he can look out of systems in the aircraft and see where he's supposed to go as well from the data links. Cool. Um, next question to the floor. If the Tic Tac was sending or receiving electromagnetic signals, uh, could Hawkeye discern directionally where the origin of the data was coming from? Yes. Oh, sure. there you go. Yes. Yes, yeah. you can. 100% <laughs> yes. And actually, if it was squawking anything, just about, if it was, depending on what frequency it was, a lot of the ships could have seen it in Hawkeye specifically because, well, that's literally what it's there for. <laughs> so. and, and Andy, just so you know, when uh, in during operations on the on the ship, um, like the radar operator will say new track four four two five, and then everybody in a position on the air side is going to chime in with their own piece of information. And one of those guys is the electronic warfare supervisor, and he is specifically looking for that. He's looking for signals coming from that contact because um, with his information, I'm able to tell, hey, this is a com air because it's got com air radar. Or, hey, this is a, a Soviet MiG-25 because it's got that type of signature. So I, I use all of the, these little pieces of information to make the identification. And that's where the problem we and found. in this case... Is there, we couldn't find yeah, figure out case, what it was. There was <laughs> yeah, there was, no, there was no electronic emissions from these things. 
because I mean, uh, everybody wants everybody wants to look at this stuff and say, okay, well, there could have been, uh, you know, a person that made a mistake. Well, it doesn't matter if a person made a mistake; the entire battle group didn't make a mistake. And there's so much information that we're using to try to try to figure out exactly what these objects are. Is that it, it's it's honestly it just. Uh, it feels like anybody that's really trying to debunk it based off of that fact about us not being trained enough or somebody making a mistake, it's, it feels like they're just trying to make a sensational accusation. Um, because if you, if you knew the, the way that this stuff works, and that's what we're trying to relay to people, is that there's no way we made a mistake that this was an unknown object. There was no way we made a mistake that it was a solid object. There's no way that we made a mistake about how fast it went or the capabilities of it. Uh, that's why we're here. That's why we're talking to you right now. Uh, if we didn't believe it, and we wouldn't be here. And if it wasn't real, then the government definitely wouldn't have said it. They said anything at all. They would have just been like, yeah, yeah, sure, believe what you want to believe, just like they have for the last 60 years. But instead, they, they, had, they had their hand pulled this time. Yeah, there was hard. It's really hard to deny the the you know the the video evidence that we we put forward, and then from there, you know, we can testify the rest. You know, that's you know we've got video, we've got radar, we've got you know audio, we've got the pilots themselves. I don't know how much more people want uh, at this point. Either get on board or get the hell out. Get have to get the hell out of the way. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, send us some money to go figure it out more. <laughs> Give us enough money, I'll take yeah, you with us. <laughs> yeah, we will help, help fund us, and we'll go out there and we'll figure this shit out. If it's that just, simple. If you just advertise ahead, a CE5 experience for $2,500, you'll get a few people jumping on board, I'm sure, as well. So <laughs> I, can, I can flog them or... Yeah, you know, waterboard them or something, and they can hallucinate it if they want. I, I think there's places. I think there's places you can go for that kind of stuff anyway. Um, so, two more questions. Uh, do you guys know of others? And I'm sure you will. And can you give an estimate of what sort of numbers of people have had similar experiences to yourselves that just haven't came public yet? And any details at all you can share? Well, to give you an idea, since I went public with this, I've probably had just personally over at least a hundred different people of credible nature, whether they're pilots, prior military, with with top secret clearances. Um, mostly, I'll be honest with you, mostly pilots, commercial pilots, and uh, military pilots. I've gotten over a hundred emails depicting uh, various from back in the you know. Back in the 50s and 60s, I've got some guys that won't come public about it, but definitely wanted me to know the story and that I'm not alone, you know, in that kind of situation. Um, and I know that the other guys have all received emails from people, uh, you know. And, of course, I take I take everything with a grain of salt until I kind of look into things. And I'm, But I'm appreciative of any of the stories that anybody wants to uh, share with us. But I think without a shadow of a doubt there's not a day that doesn't go by that a new witness is not created so i'm thinking every single day a pilot sees something a credible witness sees something that they can't explain running through the skies i think it's that common and i think that's why it permeates our society so thoroughly well said gary and i agree with all that 
Awesome. Um, next question. I uh, had a few people ask this one. I know it's something that we talked about just before the show as well. Have you got any comments on Deep Prasad and his time with UAPX? Oh, good kid. You should get off of uh, Twitter so much. And uh, we don't have any other real anything other really to say about him. There's not much to say about him. You know, he, he was with us for a while. Um, we hadn't really done anything yet before before we separated. Uh, he didn't particularly like how we monitored his social media, so he left the company. And that's that's our official statement as UAPX. And thank you for making a statement as well. I appreciate you answering that. Last question, uh, and I'm looking for an answer here from all of you. With the UAP task force now being formed and underway, are we going to find out within the next, I'll give an estimate here, two to three years, that these unidentified craft have an origin that is not of this earth, if I word it that way? I know Kevin wishes, hopes they are. I, I, I just, uh, I'm scared no matter which way it goes. Uh, I'll be dead honest. All of this shit is, it scares the hell out of me because I don't see a good direction that this is going into. And if I'm completely wrong and it actually goes in the direction where they're just, these people that have lived here and they're just helping us, I will gladly eat crow. <laughs> PJ, do you want to come on that? I don't know if they're going to get anywhere anytime soon. Um, they've got a lot of, they've got a lot of work to do just to, just to catch up to where everything is, man. I, this, this universe of ours is so freaking huge. Uh, the, the the odds that we are the only living, you know, when I say we, I'm including every, like, even like mosquitoes and stuff, you know, like every living organism on our planet. The chances that we are the only living organism in the entire universe has to be zil. It has to be zero. In fact, the opposite has to be true. Now, that's not to say that they even care about us or they're the ones visiting us or that's what we saw. But I don't. I honestly don't believe that we're alone in this universe. It, it, in my mind, is scientifically impossible. It just is. There's no freaking way that's that's going to prove true. No, I, I agree, Kevin. And you say this universe, and that discounts the other universes that may be out there as well. And I'll I'll leave that one just there. Um, but listen, gents, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you all. Uh, I thank you very much for your time. Thank you to all the listeners for sending in your questions as well. Uh, so it's a brand new format I've been trying, and hopefully it'll get uh, better and better each time. But I think I'll struggle to get three guests of the the same caliber. Uh, and again, PJ, special thanks to filling in so late as well for for Sean who couldn't make the show. Andy, let's do bring in other people on the team, like uh, Kevin Knuth, a professor from the um, university out in New York, uh, Bruce McBee. Uh, in other words, we, I want to get the scientists um, and the physicists uh, during the next meeting. A good one would have is, uh, you know, in addition get, to get Kevin Knuth on here. Uh, that's, uh, yeah, he, he'd be a, he'd be a real good interview. The guy's got a, a wonderful mind. Oh, my yeah. God, he's brilliant. There ain't no doubt about it. Yep. Any of that Absolutely would be great. Brilliant. And, and listen, a lot of people want to hear from you as well, and that's um, UAPX getting started up and, and really getting going too. So we look forward to all of that. So gents, just again, thank you very much from me.
was playing bass for the Parliament of The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shoved out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little Imagine how it could have been any better. I got to the top of the stairs and there he was. Like you awake, I was about to abduct you, cuz. I jumped back and nearly kissed myself. Then I climbed out the window after the elf. And I woke up in my bed and there was something on my head and everything was weird and everything was red. I called up my boys. They thought this was noise. They thought it was a dream. They thought it was my toys. They thought it was my problems. And they think I should because it doesn't really scare me. If you really want to know who I think they be, I guess you and me and us and we and him and her and that and she and that thing over there and what's that, Jay? Thank you.